Joe Frazier's in trouble, because the Muhammad Ali Joe Frazier's going to meet is going to be better than the Muhammad Ali he met three years ago. Joe's going to come out smoking, and I ain't going to be joking. I'll be pecking and a-poking, pouring water on his smoking. Then this might shock and amaze you, but I will destroy Joe Frazier. Some people say, you better watch Joe Frazier. He's awful strong. I said, tell him to try band roll-on. And Ali is getting the people to chant, Ali Boumaye, that means Ali kill him. I told you, I'm the real champion. I told you, I'm the champion of the world. All of you bow, all of my critics crawl, all of you suckers who write the Ring magazine, boxing those there, all of you suckers bow. It's hard to believe, all the years, everything that's passed between us. It's so hard to believe and so memorable and now it's 
time to say to you, Muhammad, God bless you and happy birthday to you. And you know something? You are exactly who you said you are. You never waver. You are free to be who you want to be. I love you. I am the greatest. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this podcast. Muhammad Ali passed away at the age of 74. We'll take a look at his life and his legacy and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 28 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome to another installment of The Bridge. Somewhat of a somber mood for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed the brief tribute that led into the show regarding some of the more recognizable quotes from Muhammad Ali, who passed away on Friday at the age of 74 after a long, long battle with Parkinson's disease and several other elements from being a professional boxer for a couple of decades. I was all set to start getting into talking about the NBA Finals, which we are currently in the heart of, and early Saturday morning, ESPN broke the news that Muhammad Ali had passed away after only a brief stay in the hospital, and we can say what we will about the four-letter network for some of the different things that they do, but I do have to give them credit for their coverage of his passing. It happened after midnight, and they pretty much stayed on air without commercials for the next four hours. They had great guests, great spots for interviews. They had the big wigs on with Bob Lee and Jeremy Schapp and Michael Wilbon and Stephen A. Smith and all those recognizable names that usually are incredibly professional and have a lot to say if there's a tragedy or a problem or something of importance to talk about. And it was nice to just get the first taste of some of the different things and stories and quotes and interviews and highlights that we would be seeing over the next couple days and will continue to see up until this Friday when there's the funeral service and the ceremony and the burying of Muhammad Ali in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. So along with watching all of that coverage and listening to some interviews and reading a ton of stories that were available to the public via Twitter and different media outlets, some great writers who covered boxing in its heyday, giving their take and sharing some personal stories about the life and times and covering Muhammad Ali, 
I also took to YouTube and checked out the HBO documentary about the Thriller in Manila, which was the third installment of the Muhammad Ali Joe Frazier saga, which tells the story more through the eyes of Joe Frazier and those surrounding him than it does tell the story through Muhammad Ali's eyes. So it's very interesting to get his perspective just because both of their careers really took an incredibly different path after that fight and for the rest of their lives. Muhammad Ali ends up becoming a multimillionaire throughout most of his life, whereas when Joe Frazier's career is over, he ends up living in the second floor of his gym in his hometown in Philadelphia. So that fight, those three fights, just made an incredibly interesting story, and that's definitely something for you all to check out if you haven't already. I also checked out the documentary called When We Were Kings, and that deals with the buildup to the rumble in the jungle with George Foreman. Another incredibly interesting documentary, some great interviews, just telling the story of what happened leading up to that fight in Zaire. Some pretty great interviews from both boxers and the surrounding camps and the impact that that fight had for both careers. There's been so many incredible pieces throughout several mediums that tell all these different stories about Ali's life. Whether that starts with him winning a gold medal in the 1960 Olympics, to coming on the scene by beating Sonny Liston, to deciding to convert to the Nation of Islam, to not fighting in the Vietnam War and losing out on three of his prime years of fighting, to coming back not really himself, to losing to Joe Frazier the first time, then beating him again twice more to beating George Foreman when he was a 7-1 to one underdog, to maybe fighting just a little bit too long in matches against opponents he would have easily beat but ended up being beaten, to his 56-5 and five overall fighting record, 37 of those wins coming via knockout, to the decades of internal suffering that he had to deal with through Parkinson's disease, not being able to speak his mind, losing one of his most recognizable qualities in his voice. Years and years of just really being a shell of his former self, but still being one of the most recognizable faces in the entire world. His story is really just a fascinating one, and far be it for me to be the one to tell it to you, because in my 26 years of being on this earth, Muhammad Ali really was not the Muhammad Ali that previous generations grew up with, watching in and out of the ring to some people, a godlike figure. To some people, too loud, too obnoxious, too cocky. To some people, the greatest fighter of all time. In my lifetime, as I mentioned, he was just really a shell of what he once was. So for this week's episode, it was a pretty easy decision as far as who I would pick to come on and speak about Muhammad Ali, his life, his career in the ring, his life out of the ring. And that person is Jason Kaidel, friend of the show. He's been on a couple of times already, wants to talk about the National Football League, another time to tell of his story to getting where he is today as a sports columnist for WFAN.com and CBSSports.com. He got his start covering boxing, and he was actually one of the first people I thought of when Muhammad Ali's death was first announced. Upon hearing the news, Jason had tweeted, Two most important men in my life, my father and Muhammad Ali, hard to write and cry at the same time. And you can follow him on Twitter at Jason Kaidel, that's J-A-S-O-N. 
K-E-I-D-E-L. And shortly thereafter, on June 6th, he released a column entitled Muhammad Ali was a champion in every sense of the word. And it's a great read. I'll attach it to my show notes so you can take a look at it. And as he says in the interview you're about to hear, there's not many people around that know more about Muhammad Ali. So it was a pleasure to get to sit down with him again and just chat about Muhammad Ali's life. And some of the different things regarding his legacy that he hopes we will remember of Muhammad Ali. So without further ado, let's get to the interview. We're here with Jason Kaidel, friend of the show. He's a columnist for WFAN.com and CBSSports.com. It's a pleasure to have you back on the show, sir. How have you been? I've been great, my friend. How are you? I'm doing very well. Let me start here. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Muhammad Ali just because of the vast knowledge on that subject that you have. You got your start in the industry covering boxing about 17 years ago and were a fan of the sport, I'm sure, long before that. You also tweeted out shortly after Ali's death that the two most important men in your life are your father and Muhammad Ali and that it was hard to write and cry at the same time. When were you first introduced to Muhammad Ali and what type of impact did he have on your youth and even that he still continues to have today? Well, I'll answer that in two parts. Um... The first one being, since I made my bones initially as a boxing writer, I felt somewhat naturally tethered to the champ because he was uh, a monument to the sport. Um, frankly, if there's a Mount Rushmore, he's probably the only face on it, uh, certainly in terms of his cultural and athletic uh, significance. Uh, we can debate about his place in history. I have Ali actually number two all-time and Sugar Ray Robinson number one. And I think secretly or in private moment, Ali would agree with that. Uh, that list. But anyway, um, so Ali sort of hovers over the sport like some great apparition. He's just, um, his spirit, his legacy, uh, his intelligence, his his brilliant boxing splendor, all that is part of what makes him so great. Obviously, his significance extends way beyond the squared circle. Um, And I also fell in love with boxing as a child. My father the first sporting event I went to, my father took me to Madison Square Garden, um, back when it was still the most important arena in America, and saw Roberto Duran fight Carlos Palomino. So for a 10-year-old to see that, uh, it was quite enlightening, and I fell in love right away. Just the aura, the the, the, the magnetism, the, the gravity of it, just, just everything about it. And the fact that I saw one of the 10 greatest fighters ever to draw breath in Roberto Duran made it that much more enticing. So... Uh, I, I fell in love right away. Um, football was my other sport, but boxing, because of its uniqueness, the barbarism, the skill, the will, everything that goes with it, there's just a certain magnetism that comes with attending a fight. Um, there are very few sports, if any, that certainly captures your attention and drains your adrenal gland the way boxing does. It just has a certain uh, aura to it that you can't explain unless you've actually been there. So on two levels, one, I fell in love with boxing right away, and Ali, even back then, even though he was deep into the back nine of his career, uh, was still king of the sport. He was the face of boxing for decades. And then as a boxing writer, um, it's impossible to talk about boxing without talking about Muhammad Ali. Uh, for instance, a good friend of mine who was interviewed, I think, on Good Morning America and the Today Show is a fellow named Bruce Silverglade. He's the owner of Gleason's Gym, which is world-renowned by now. I'm sure everybody who knows anything about boxing has heard of Gleason's Gym. Uh, the current iteration is in Brooklyn. It's been in Brooklyn for about 30 years. Before that, it was in Midtown Manhattan. Before that, the Bronx. It's the oldest continuous boxing gym in, in the United States uh, by far, and that's official. Um, 
And so you can't talk to Bruce without him talking about the champ. He's met the champ. The champ is sparred in his gym. He trained at his gym. Um, another good friend of mine, Mark Breland, had a chance to hang with uh, the champ. Mark Breland is the only fighter in history with five gold grand championships and an Olympic gold medal. Um, so the champ is just sort of grandfathered into every boxing conversation among people who at least care deeply about the sport. So, um, And Ali was, frankly, just a role model to so many young men, particularly young men of my vintage, who were born in, say, the 60s or early 70s. He was everything a young man could aspire to be. He was beautiful. He was bold. He was courageous. He was articulate. He was funny. He was witty. Uh, he was a man of principle, a man of great conviction. Um, there really was nothing wrong with the man. So uh, if you're looking for a superhero, you don't have to go to a comic book store. You can find one... Uh, on your television or in person when you met Muhammad Ali. So let me open the line of questioning with this, since we know that Ali called himself the greatest. He lost, I believe, only just five times. He was never really knocked down, never knocked out. In the sport of boxing, just how great would you say Muhammad Ali really was? Uh, it's almost hard to quantify. Uh, Ali was so great. It's, it's, uh, he defied all boxing logic, too, you know. Well, usually a boxer is great because they study the fundamentals and then sort of improvise into something more. Ali never adopted the fundamentals. He was so good. Almost everything he did was counterintuitive, and he still made it work. You know, you hear Angelo Dundee talk about him. You hear, well, he's now dead, but if you, when you heard uh, Angelo Dundee talk about him, when you hear Teddy Atlas talk about him, when you hear other great fighters or great trainers talk about him, uh, the first thing they, they mention is the fact that he didn't fight like other fighters. He was so good, so big, so gifted. Uh, he didn't slip punches. He just leaned back. Nobody does that. He kept his hands down. Uh, he taunted fighters. Um, he, he, he devoted a great amount of time in, into uh, getting inside his opponent's head. He was good this way, John. He was so good that at 215 pounds, at his peak, mind you, before he was banned from boxing, he was training with welterweights. That's how fast he was. Now, to, to give you some perspective, you know, they sort of partitioned boxing divisions by about 5 to 10 pounds. He was training with people 60 to 70 pounds lighter than he was. That's how fast he was because he couldn't train with a heavyweight because none of them could hit him. He had to actually train with someone of Floyd Mayweather's size in order to actually get hit to, to, to find somebody uh, comparatively as fast as he was. So uh, he was that good. And he had an incredible chin. He had the best jab in the history of the sport. Uh, and he was tough as nails. His conditioning, you know, for all of his talk and bravado, and all of his hubris and all of his self-aggrandizement, he was always a hard worker. He was always in great shape. You know, that's something that's under understated about him. Uh, he was always running, always training, always working. Now, be between fights, he could put on a few pounds like anybody else, but he was in incredible condition. He could fight five rounds, 10 rounds, 15 rounds, and barely be out of breath. For him to have gotten up, uh, for those who still remember or have seen footage recently of the first fight with Frazier, Joe Frazier hit him with a left hook that would have dropped the rhinoceros. And Ali got up in two seconds. Now, in order to do that in the 15th round, speaks to his chin, his courage, and his stamina. There's a famous line from Vince Lombardi, fatigue makes, makes cowards of us all. And that's very true. Fatigue does make cowards of us all. So that's one of the reasons so many coaches, managers, trainers emphasize conditioning. Because the chin, having a good chin is not just about your biology or your physical makeup. It's also about conditioning. So for Ali to get hit with that left hook, which was perfect, hit him right in the face, broke his jaw, and he still got up in two seconds is just astonishing. So uh, as a boxer, Muhammad Ali is certainly the best heavyweight who ever lived, although Bon Vivant, Bert Sugar disagrees. He has Joe Lewis, number one. 
Uh, I'm not certainly one to question Bert Sugar, but I just respectfully uh, disagree with him. And I have Ali as the second best boxer of any weight in history, with Sugar Ray Robinson being number one. And for the record, Ali Tyler Nistana to Ray Robinson. So that was the ultimate homage to Ray Robinson for somebody of Ali's talent. To, to pattern his style, his boxing style, after Ray Robinson. Going back to the beginning of his career, we know he really broke onto the scene in a way, winning the 1960 Olympics when he was then known as Cassius Clay. But then his Correct. real huge victory was against Sonny Liston, 7-1 to underdog. He screamed the phrase, I'm the greatest, I shook up the world. And that was just at the age of 22. Where do you think that fight stands in the whole scheme of things as far as importance is concerned? Well, that's, that's a great question. I was asked that very question by WFAN a few days ago. Uh, uh, Jody McDonald asked me if I thought the Liston fight, the first Liston fight or the George Foreman fight were his most important. And I'll tell him basically, I'll tell you basically what I told him. I think... The Foreman upset was certainly epic, and certainly nobody anticipated it, not even people close to Ali. But he already established himself as an all-time great fighter. Even if he had lost to Foreman, he still would have been one of the top five fighters of all time. He was 32 years old. His legacy had already been built. Um, of course, he added to that legacy by beating Foreman. But everybody knew who he was. He was, by that point, the most popular man, most well-known name in the world. Uh, but frankly, the first listing fight, in my opinion, is the single greatest athletic achievement in American sports history. Um, to give it some perspective, John, people didn't think Ali would lose to Sonny Liston. They thought he wouldn't be killed by Sonny Liston. And I'm not exaggerating. People in the arena, people running the fight, people running Ali's camp, the media, almost everybody of significance that fight had to plan the nearest and fastest routes to the closest hospital because they were so worried that Ali would, would be physically, seriously physically harmed by the first or second round. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, you've heard reporters there from, from Robert Lipsight to uh, uh, Dave Anderson to Edwin Pope, the famous writer from the Miami Herald. All of them talked about knowing the fastest way to get to the closest hospital because they thought Liston would murder him. And also, Liston wasn't just some chump, some ballroom fighter. Liston was not just the heavyweight champion of the world. He had knocked out Floyd Patterson in his prior two fights, twice, knocked him out both times in the first round. And Floyd Patterson was no chump. Floyd Patterson was an Olympic gold medalist and a great fighter in his own. Uh, so he was so dominant that, frankly, people were scared to fight Liston. And Ali, as he was known then, Cassius Clay, had the guts to uh, fight him. But a lot of people thought, you know, he was pulling the Louisville lip before he became Mount Ali. You know, people thought him as a novelty act, as a handsome, uh, funny young man who, in, in the case of Sonny Liston, bit off way more than he could chew. So, and depending on the gambling line, it was either 7-1, to one, as you pointed out, or 8-1. to one. But, frankly, nobody gave him a chance to win that fight. So when you consider his underdog status, when you consider how accomplished and how hard-hitting Liston was, uh, when you consider where both were in their careers, uh, the Liston fight, in my opinion, was the greatest athletic achievement in American history. So soon after that fight, Cassius Clay converted to the Nation of Islam, became Muhammad Ali. He would beat Liston mm -hmm. again. He would defend his title several times. But fast-forwarding a little bit to when he was 25 and basically said, that he would be willing to go to prison instead of fighting in the Vietnam War. What do you think the significance of that decision was as far as in that time period of history, knowing that he would lose potentially three prime years of his career to stand up for what he believed in at such a young age? Well, it, it's significant on so many levels, John. I mean, it wasn't, you know, a lot of people think that uh, Clay slash Ali did these things to either irritate or placate certain 
sections of, of our society, from the media to the government. But he didn't. He did everything he did based entirely on conviction. Uh, now, frankly, it was considered a, a cultural shift. It was considered a political shift. It was considered a, a religious shift. But frankly, everything he did was based on principle. He did not do this to appease Elijah Muhammad. He didn't do it to irritate uh, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, he didn't do this to ingratiate himself with black people or to irritate white people. He did it because it was the right thing for him to do at that time. And, you know, frankly, if, if, if Ali had accepted induction to the Army, it's not like he would have been given an M-16 and then dropped into uh, uh, to Hanoi or something. You know, he would have been uh, like Joe Lewis. He would have been um, sort of a token uh, officer or NCO. Uh, he would have been uh, flown around the world for USO exhibits. He would have been, you know, uh, tossed into a ring to fight a few exhibitions and take pictures with the troops and be a sort of morale officer for the Army. Um, so he could have certainly enlisted and been credited as being a hero, even though he never would have fought, which is why Jackie Robinson was so critical of Ali at the time. But Ali did not do this to be popular. So um, it was an incredible thing. You know, people, you know, time has a way of airbrushing our legacies. We have a very healthy impulse to project assumed qualities on people because they're dead, like John F. Kennedy or other people. We ignore their transgressions because the good outweighs the bad. Right. Uh, but frankly, in the 1960s, Ali was the most hated man in America. So although he's this sort of teddy bear figure now, he was absolutely considered satanic back then. He did everything uh, that our culture told us not to do. He wasn't considered patriotic. He wasn't considered respectful. Uh, he wasn't considered humble. He wasn't considered noble. Uh, he wasn't, for lack of a better term, a good boy. And he knew that. And he knew he was taking a chance. And frankly, he forfeited three and a half years of his career, millions of dollars, and took a chance of going to either prison or never fighting again. So uh, what he did took incredible courage. Uh, and frankly, even people in his own community were against it. So... I can't think of a praise any greater than, than calling him as courageous an athlete as we've had in our country. When he came back to boxing after those three years, are there things that you see for his attributes that he might have gained or that he might have lost because of those three years off? How different of a fighter was he when he did come back to boxing after that time period? Great question. That's something that's, uh, that's under-evaluated as well. He lost. He gained nothing other than a little bit of size, because you know we all tend to gain a little weight in our late twenties and early thirties. Uh, but he actually had lost a lot. He had lost much of his reflexes, much of his speed, much of his stamina. He was um, he was still the best because he had so much natural talent. Ali in nineteen sixty seven at his best was so much better than everybody else. He literally left the field. It was like secretary going against the donkey. But when he came back in nineteen seventy. He was just a shell of the fighter. Even then, even before he fought Frazier, even though before he fought George Foreman, uh, he was clearly not the same fighter. I would say he was about 60% of the Ali, uh, who was the current heavyweight champion uh, at the time he was banned from boxing. You know, you look at his fights, he fought Oscar Bonavina. I think that went 15 rounds. He would have beaten Oscar Bonavina in five rounds if he were in Cassius Clay with a young Muhammad Ali. Uh, he, was, he was, like I said, mid-60, maybe 70% of the fighter he was. But he was not nearly the same fighter. So if he had fought those three years from 1967 to 1970, we would be talking about the greatest fighter ever, hands down. Before I get into Frazier, I wanted to touch on the Rumble and the Juggle in 1974. My generation knows George Foreman is a grill salesman, but hmm. we know he was a bad man. So he had destroyed Norton. He had destroyed Frazier. 
Ali didn't really have an easy time with either of those guys. Foreman was well favored in the fight, and even Howard Cosell didn't really give Ali a chance. How much do you think Ali's promotion of the fight was improving Ali's confidence and maybe getting into the head a little bit of George Foreman before the fight? I think Foreman thought the DAC was stacked against him. First of all, Ali always promoted himself as the blacker fighter. Uh, despite even with Joe Frazier, he said he was the blacker fighter, even though Frazier was blacker in every conventional sense of the word, from his skin color to being born and raised in the Jim Crow South as a sharecropper's son. Ali was magical in, in the way he was able to distort the public perception. Uh, so by the time Foreman got there, not only had Ali convinced the crowd to not only chant his name, but say, kill him, I.E. Bumbaye, but also uh, Foreman had, was going around with this German shepherd, and Ali pointed out accurately that the German Shepherd was the dog that police used in the United States to attack black people. So he used every every advantage he could to get the edge on, on George Foreman. And he used his press conferences to, to mimic Foreman and to mock him and uh, to get in his head. And that extra time did nothing but help Ali and hurt Foreman. By the time Foreman got into the ring, he probably thought that 99% of Africa was against him, even though they frankly came from the same place originally. He had to think that he was a white man by the time he got to the ring with Ali. That was part of Ali's genius. It's almost like you can look at that fight like it was its own Rocky movie before Rocky was even in existence because Ali trash talked just like Mr. T did. And mm -hmm. Ali also had the qualities of Rocky in the ring because he pretty much let Foreman just beat the hell out of him like Rocky did with Clubber Lang, using the rope and dope mm -hmm. to his advantage in those later rounds before Foreman got tired and went after him. Do you think mm -hmm. that win was what really put Ali on the map? Well, anybody who was a true boxing devotee had to, by then, realize what a great fighter Ali was. If the fight convinced someone of his incredible talent and courage, and they hadn't been following his career closely enough. So if people started taking to Ali after he came back from his suspension, then sure, then Foreman was the icing on the cake, as it were. Um, but he had already fought enough to establish and beaten enough people to establish his place in boxing history, and certainly boxing of those years. Because um, he'd already, fought, you know, he'd already fought Joe Frazier, and that was in, it was a loss, but it was an epic fight. Because uh, he'd already beaten by that time, he'd already beaten Liston twice. He defeated uh, uh, Floyd Patterson, George Chavallo, Zora Foley, Cleveland Williams, um, Ernie Terrell. So and these were tremendous fighters who would be champions today in this watered-down boxing world we have now. Uh, so Ali was truly, truly great by then. I think what it did was establish himself as the greatest heavyweight of all time. But if people needed that former fight to realize Ali was great, then they just won't follow him closely enough. So hitting on Frazier finally, the undefeated Ali slated to meet the undefeated Joe Frazier in what was deemed the fight of the century at Madison Square Garden in 71. And that's when we really first saw Ali go into that promotion against Joe Frazier, poking fun at his race, poking fun at his intelligence. And although mm -hmm. Ali suffered his first professional loss, he wins the rematch. And then we get to the Thrilla in Manila where everything before that escalates. We arguably get one of the best fights of all time. And I know Ali's biographer, Thomas Hauser, had said that Frazier and Ali in the ring were pretty much equal to each other. But as we know, their careers really took a different turn after that fight and for the rest of their lives. Could you talk about the importance of this fight to both boxers' careers and the effect that it had on the sport of boxing overall? Uh, it's so funny that you mentioned that because Tom Hauser was one of the people who helped get me into the industry. 
Um, very nice man, was very generous with his time. Um, when I decided to pursue boxing, writing as a living, uh, he was very kind to me and helped me get into uh, meet the right people, get to the right websites, etc. So I just wanted to give Mr. Hauser a shout out. Yeah, they were equals, and they frankly needed each other, which was why Ali's treatment of Frazier was so bewildering. You know, Frazier wasn't just great for Ali's pocketbook. He literally kept Ali afloat while he was banned from boxing and loaned him money, you know, took very good care of him, stuff that, you know, frankly, you wouldn't consider a ring opponent to do. But right. Frazier was such a nice man, he did these things for him. So, yes, I mean, Ali, if, if Ali is a 9.5, if you rate a boxer from, let's say, 1 to 10, and Frazier was a nine. I mean, they were that close. You know, there's another boxing maxim, and it's true that styles make fights. And in this case, Frazier was the perfect foe for Ali. He was relentless. He went to the body. He had a left hook that was perfect because Ali kept his right hand down. Ali had everything you could ask for in an opponent for Ali. Frazier did. So um, they were that close. It's just Ali was a little bit better, and um, he had the advantage of having uh, certainly the trendy crowd behind him. A couple amazing things about that fight. At the end, Joe Frazier eventually has the fight stopped on his behalf. We find out from a trainer in Ali's corner that he was ready to cut off his gloves before going into the 15th round, which means Frazier would have won. And who knows how their careers would have changed if that was the end result. Based on both of them just pretty much killing each other in the ring, do you think that Ali should have retired after his third bout with Joe Frazier? First of all, that's one thing that people don't talk about. I don't know if it's because they don't know about it or because it doesn't feed the mythology of Ali. But Ali absolutely begged Ezra Dundee to cut off his gloves entering that final round. And, and Dundee was close to doing it until he saw that Joe Frazier was going to quit. So, uh, you know, boxing history would have been so severely different, uh, so, so profoundly different had one the other side of quit and not Ali. So that's a real thing in history. You know, they say it's often as, it's, it's, what's better to be lucky or good. And Ali frankly was both, which just made it even more impossible to defeat in or out of the ring. If Frazier invaded another 30 seconds, he would have won that fight. But like I said, it doesn't seem the Ali mythology, so people don't talk about it. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other answer to your question? The last part was, do you think after that fight, Ali should have oh, called yeah. it quits? Yes, he should have. And I've said that many times. In fact, Freddie Pacheco, his uh, official physician, uh, begged him to quit. And when he didn't, Pacheco left his camp. And unfortunately, Ali had a bit of a vengeful uh, uh, streak in him in that he stopped talking to Pacheco. Ali would shut people out if you didn't uh, agree with the fight or a movie made in the, in the ring. Uh, unfortunately, he would have cut you off. So he was a bit spiteful in that regard. Uh, but yes, I mean, to a man, almost every Ali worshiper, and like I myself on top of that list, agrees that Ali should have quit after the Frazier fight. There was nothing left for him to accomplish. Uh, he had ended the trilogy, decided who one fight better than Frazier. Uh, he'd already defeated Foreman. He'd already defeated Norton. Uh, there was really nothing left for him to gain. So... Frankly, he should have quit, and who knows how history would change, how his life would change. Because I, I don't think the Parkinson's would have hit him as quickly. Uh, I think he would have been able to speak for much longer. He would have been able to enjoy the world and let us enjoy him for much longer. Uh, the irony is, you know, other than his boxing ability, uh, his tongue was probably his greatest appendage, and we were robbed of it for the last 30 years of his life. So, yes, absolutely he should have. Of course, Ali had a very opulent lifestyle, had a huge entourage, so no doubt. His, his decision to keep fighting 
with equal parts vanity and monetary. He needed the money. And it's hard to say no to millions of dollars in the 1970s. What else was he going to do for a living? So, yes, he kept fighting, and no, he should not have kept fighting. In today's day and age, we seem to want our athletes to be genuine when they're during press conferences, when they're at the podiums. The media and the public gets tired of those cliched answers that we so often hear. Has there been or will there ever be an athlete who is so open and unfiltered and one who could almost always back up the trash talk? No, they won't. And unfortunately, we're seeing all these spinoffs, all these offshoots of Ali. People think they're clever because they run their mouth. And what they don't realize is they're just recycling stuff that Ali has already said. Um, now, in fairness, and this doesn't really matter because he became an American original anyway, but Ali actually got his original stick from a stick from a, a fighter, a wrestler named Gorgeous George. Um, that makes a lot of people laugh because, one, they didn't know who Gorgeous George was, and why would Ali derive his craft from a wrestler? But that's actually true. Uh, wrestling was uh, a trash-talking enclave even back in the 50s. So Ali first learned to trash-talk from wrestling, and then he developed his own style, his own wit, his own poetry, and it obviously worked very well. Uh, but no, we're not going to see fighters, fighters uh, today, and, and frankly any uh, successful athlete today, uh, speaks in with a forked tongue, and frankly it's all rehearsed, it's all pre-prepared, and they do it for one of two reasons. Uh, one, to make themselves look good, uh, and another to sell their apparel, sell their brand, or to make their opponent look bad. But almost nothing anyone says is original now. Ali was such an original, was so charismatic, was so witty, so thoughtful, so thorough in his poetry, in his authenticity, that uh, frankly, anyone now, it just pales and pales and pales in comparison. We can find, uh, we can find an athlete refreshingly honest nowadays, but original, no. Anybody who's trash-talked is merely a carbon copy or a facsimile of the greatest. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but do you have a favorite Ali quote or one of the things that he yelled after a fight or something that resonates with you as far as his sayings are concerned? Uh, two things. One, uh, I loved his tete-a-tete with um, Howard Cosell. One of the best things he ever said to him during an interview was he, he always loved to mess with Cosell's head because he knew that Cosell was wearing a toupee. And as you imagine, Cosell was a very vain man to begin with. Right. The last thing he wanted the world to know was that he was bald as an eagle. So I used to say to him, Cosell, I know that thing on your head is a phony, and it comes from the tail of a pony. I absolutely, I laugh. I laugh until my lips hurt every time he says that. And the other thing was, um, if somebody dreams he whips me, he better wake up and apologize. That, that's one of my favorite ones also. If he dreams he whipped me, he better wake up and apologize. That and the thing on your head's a phony and the tail of a pony. Those are two of my favorite uh, Ali po poems. It's amazing. There's been so much to read just with his quotes from the things that he said in the ring and without of it. He was definitely a wordsmith. He predicted he'd knock out listed in eight rounds. So uh, when he didn't come out for the seventh, this is just all improvises, all extemporaneous. Uh, he said, well, you predicted him to be, he said he'd knock him out in eight caches, so uh, what do you got to say for yourself now? And without, without pausing, without breaking, he said, sending one to go to heaven, so I beat him in seven. It was just it was perfect. <laughs> so my last question for you, my generation has memories of Ali as a man who was really just a shell of his former self. As far as his yeah. legacy is concerned, both in and out of the ring, what do you hope people will remember most about him as a fighter and as a man? Oh, my God, I could spend two hours on that, John. Um, I think Ali would want his legacy to be fairly simple and, and strictly binary. 
I think he would want to be known as the greatest fighter of all time and a man who believes in God. Um, those are both very important things to him. This shift to Islam, I mean, now, again, we can spend a lot of time on this. The Nation of Islam really used him more than served him uh, for hundreds of reasons. Uh, he was great public relations for him. He was a beautiful face. Uh, he was a popular man. Women loved him. So, you know, uh, frankly, the Nation of Islam used him as a tool for the first 10 years. He was associated with that. But once he broke free and there was no more Elijah Muhammad uh, and there was no more uh, peddling his name and face, they still did it late to his life, but it wasn't as pronounced. Uh, but he really believed in God. He really believed in Allah. He did believe that Muhammad was his prophet. Uh, those were all things that Ali very much believed in. So, uh, and, and, and the reason we know that is, one, he was always a man of his word, and two, he remained a part of Islam. He, he, he was still a Muslim 30, 40 years after he was the most important man on the planet. So that speaks to his conviction, his dedication, and his loyalty to God, or to his version of, of God. Uh, number two, he wants to be considered the greatest fighter because that was his trade. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, ironically, I think that will be overlooked. You know, people tend to hijack his principles and philosophies because it fit with theirs. You know, the left wing of, of the American populace thought that he, he died to the war in Vietnam because he was some anti-war uh, uh, protester. He was not. He did it because he didn't think black people were treated fairly. You know, he said, how can I fight on behalf of this country and not get served in my own restaurant? So his move was to help black people, not to help white people, not to advance a left-wing agenda. He did it because it was the right thing to do for his people. Right. Um, so Ali would have none of this if not for his boxing. You know, we all get tired of celebrities thinking that they're political pundits, and we're, you know, I'm exhausted from hearing the Susan Sarandon and Sean Penn of the world. You know, I, I don't care, Jane Fonda. I don't care what they think. I just want to see them act. That's why we buy money to see their movies. That's why we, we rent their movies. That's why we buy the DVDs. That's why we watch them on TVs, because they're brilliant actors. We don't care about their political philosophies. So, uh, Ali would have had none of that if not for his singular gift for boxing. You have to develop a skill first, trade first, you have to excel at it, and then people might be interested in your peripheral views. So, Ali was at first and last a great fighter. And I think, I hope we remember that part about him, because he... He was the most important athlete of the 20th century, and I say that without blinking. He was more important than Babe Ruth. He was more important than Jim Brown. He was more important than Jackie Robinson. He was more important than all of them because he was able to 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 cross over in a way that nobody else could. As great as Jackie Robinson was, he was not known by a billion people. Muhammad Ali was. Um, Jackie Robinson was a great man and a courageous man, but outside of baseball, his scope was relatively limited, at least used to be Muhammad Ali. So Ali was a great, great fighter, the greatest in many people's eyes, second greatest in my eyes, and he was a man of principle, a man who believed in God. I think that's how he wants to be remembered. An excellent life, well-remembered, in and out of the ring. It was a shame we had to see him go, but it was a pleasure to speak to you about it, and I hope that the people listening were a little bit more educated than they were coming in. I know I certainly was. And hopefully sometime down the road, we might have a story, maybe even in boxing, that will be half of what Muhammad Ali's was. We'll definitely be happy with that. But I thank you for your time, sir. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I hope we can catch up again real soon. Thanks for having me on, brother. Anytime I can help. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this episode and all previous episodes over on my website at www.londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. 
Please subscribe to The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast or by searching for John Lund under Artists. You can also listen to some episodes of The Bridge on the Stitcher app for you Android users and over on SoundCloud. On the next installment of The Bridge, we'll hit on the NBA Finals. Whether or not they might be over at that time, we'll discuss where the series lies and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I am the greatest.